0: Hello, everyone. Today is, let's see, I think April 13th, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas. This is a Monday Morning Analyst. Uh, as you know, this is typically a video podcast. It will return to being a video podcast just as soon as this uh, computer situation is resolved. Had a big meeting about it at work on Friday, so uh, upgrades and finishes and requisite changes are coming, but uh, you got to bear with me until we can get those done. Uh, but... For now, the podcast rolls on here on Monday mornings. Uh, We'll talk about the action that happened over the weekend. There was a fair amount going on in MMA and boxing. I'm only going to focus in on the things that I think really deserve talking about. Get to the more essential items, as it were. So that means for us, um, that, that is... Let's see, Bellator 136, I'll touch on that a fair bit. Uh, World Series of Fighting 20, I'll at least mention what happened. Um, And then we'll dig into a little bit more deeply, UFC Fight Night 64, that was on Saturday. There were other events, I believe there was an RFA event, or at least... um I have to double check. I'll make sure I get all the notes right when I put this post up on MMAfighting.com. There was certainly a PBC event. Lamont Peterson had a really close fight with Danny Garcia, um, which was strange because no one in D.C. even seemed to realize that Lamont Peterson was fighting. But be that as it may. So there's a lot to get to. I'll post all this stuff, um, again, uh, all the news and notes in the actual post. But we're just going to focus on those three MMA events that I mentioned previously. So the way this works is three parts. uh, Big overview, the fights themselves, and what's next. Let's talk about the big overview from the fights this weekend. And again, there's always kind of difficult to find the strain of commonality between what's happening when there's three different organizations. Um but what's interesting is that I think the comparisons work this time because it was a it was in large part three portions of MMA that are not too dissimilar. Which is to say, the Krakow card, the World Series of Fighting, and Bellator, with some exception obviously featured a lot of talent that are roughly at the same level of the game, right? So when the UFC does their premier events, like a Fox event or a pay-per-view, they're featuring the upper echelon of their talent. Now, it's my position that that should be the only echelon, but my opinion, of course, does not matter that much. So what happened is you had a lot of people on this Krakow card and a lot of people on World Series of Fighting's main card and a lot of people on uh, the Bellator card all... Fighting at roughly that very, very high, but sub-elite level. And so there were some commonalities. The one thing that I noticed more readily than everything else was how much the cage was a factor. And here's what I mean. The cage is a factor in many bouts. I've, I've spoken previously about how much better wrestling is when it's not on the cage anymore. You still see even very good fighters use the cage. The cage is now, and will always be a component in fighting. It's changed over the years. Guys like Couture used the cage not so much to press you there and then figure things out once he got there. He liked to run people into it so they would bounce back, and then he would use that to then lift them. And from the lift, of course, he would secure the takedown. That's changed a little bit. Guys like BJ Penn sort of patented how good takedown defense would be against the cage but what that often wound up doing was once guys realized they couldn't take them down with their first or second or even third attempts they would back out what you're finding now is not that what you're finding now is guys clinching and literally just pushing the other guy into the cage and both guys trying to work from there now in in fairness sometimes they're able to get the takedown from there the offensive pusher in fairness sometimes the other opponent is able to stuff the takedown or work their way out. Um, now this, I think Will Brooks versus Dave Jansen doesn't quite apply to this category of fighter that I'm saying, and you saw that because while they were separated a little bit um, by Big John McCarthy in their later rounds, there was a lot of attempts by both guys to turn the other one, or in Will Brooks's case, separate. It was mostly Dave Jansen, at least I wouldn't say mostly, I mean, maybe a big portion of Dave, Dave Jansen was the one doing the pushing, but that, that fight's not the best example. There were just so many other fighters this week where you saw they just didn't have a lot of offense absent the cage. And frankly, even on the cage, not a lot of offense. It's a place where the movement of the other guy is reduced, so the chaos of mixed martial arts is reduced, the uncertainty is reduced, the variables are limited, But it really creates for a rather boring fight. And I think it's the sign of a fighter still very much in the developmental stage. So understand exactly what it is that I'm saying. I am not saying the cage in and of itself is evidence that if a fighter uses it, they don't belong on the elite level. No. But what I would say is when two fighters are content to clinch along it, and really not a lot is happening. They might score a few strikes in the middle, they might attempt to take down but it gets stuffed but if the fight is a prolonged 50-50 clinch battle along the cage without much change being affected that to me is the sign of guys who really need to work on their craft they might be very good i'm not saying they're bad but they're developmental they're developmental in a way that is undeserving of the of of being called elite um because they're using the cage to help shore up what the rest of their game hasn't figured out yet but they still haven't figured out a way like there's still parody when two guys get against the cage like that no one guy has a clear advantage over the other otherwise something would happen and um, I just think that's regrettable and I think that you should look at that when you see that and you're like my god again against the fence and nothing happens that to me is a sign of two guys who or ladies who are in developmental contexts Okay. With that being said, let's now move on to the fights themselves. Uh, some decent ones. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of bad ones too, if we're being honest. But some decent ones as well. Let's start with UFC Fight Night 64. This took place at the Toron Arena in Krakow, Poland. Um, we're told that attendance was 10,000 for a gate of 720,000. There is not much to speak about on the prelim card, which I'll get to in just a second. So let's start right at the top. Uh, Filipovic versus Gonzaga. This was the rematch, of course. Uh, Mirko Krokop won. TKO at 3.30 of the third round. First two rounds went how I thought they were pretty much going to go. Gonzaga more or less timing a chance to, here we go, push Mirko Krokop into the cage, uh, or at least push him back towards the cage, not necessarily flatten him in, but his back against the cage, and from there securing a takedown. Um, in fact, he was never quite just pressing him there for extended periods, but he at least wanted it there and then would once he got the takedown from half guard, he would kind of sort of halfway backstep and then turn Mirko to get him away from the cage if possible to turn his head away. Um, and was able to pass to mount in the first and the second round. It wasn't until the second round that he was able to land elbows, which was kind of surprising because what you saw Mirko trying to do was lock up wrist control. In MMA, if someone is on top, even from guard, and they lock up, the person underneath on the bottom locks up wrist control. That's your chance to use that wrist control. Let them keep it. You just wing an elbow over the top. You kind of you kind of rotate your wrist in towards the center of your head. And you wing the elbow over the top. Um, and he only discovered that seemingly in the second round. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what to make of that. Um, great control by Gonzaga on top. You saw that when he wanted to flatten his hips out... Of course, he did it the right way. A guy that decorated in of course, he'll do that. And by that, I mean when he wanted to flatten him out and grapevine Mirko Krokop's legs, his hips were closer to Mirko Krokop's hips. When he wanted to ground and pound, he didn't attach himself. He actually slid up high on the mount and then put his knees on the ground. You can't do it up top the way you can do it up bottom. Because if you try to, like, press your hips down and then lock up underneath you can get rolled a lot easier, and it's harder to um, maintain control while you're punching. It's only when your hips are much closer to their legs, when your face is much closer to their face, then you can really go hip in, and of course, he did a great job of that. Third round, though, is where things uh, turned, and this was kind of interesting to watch, actually, because Quokop, I think, had a great game plan for the most part. Uh, being patient and letting the, you know, just stick to the things you do well and avoid the things you do poorly. If you get in a bad situation, do your best, essentially. I mean, I'm sure it was much more detailed than that, but that's a general view of it. And it was interesting that they had clinched along the cage with Mirko's back to it, I believe. But here was the key. And again, you did not see this much in the Dave Jansen versus Will Brooks fight, which we'll get to in just a moment. If you're going to be clinching with someone, you got to be really careful about spacing. You know, you see what you might see is, and again, I was just sort of critical about guys who do it, but obviously, with any position in mixed martial arts, there are some nuances. The question is whether your opponent is capable of taking advantage of them. What you saw in the clinch in the third round was that Gonzaga got a little loose with positioning. You don't want to leave a lot of space in between unless you're already controlling it, and even then, you want to be really careful about it. Open space is where things happen, right? If there's space between you and me, someone one of us is going to cover it to do something. When there's no space, well, our options are a little more limited. What you see is that Gonzaga, maybe he was pummeling, the replay didn't quite show, but he at least created some distance between their chests, and his face now moved apart like there was distance between their faces. That was just enough space for Mirko Krokop to wing an elbow over the top, which landed hard. And because it landed hard, it stunned him for a second, which allowed another one. To come over the top. It wasn't that he was Gonzaga. He was not chest to chest. He was not pressing his ear into the side of Mirko Krokop's head. He was too far apart. And and it doesn't take much or a long time. You don't have to stand there for five minutes before someone figures it out. If they see you floating in space, you're going to eat a shot. They're going to feed you an elbow. And that's exactly what happened. From there, Gonzaga tries to hang on as he's clearly on roller skates. Eventually gets pushed off, hit with a couple of uppercuts. And then rolls to his back. Now here was a critical error by Gonzaga. Not because he lacks good jujitsu, of course, but just because he was probably very hurt. There was something that, look, it depends on what kind of attacks you're going to do. If you're one of these thin guys who has wiry legs and you're a major heavy guard player, then this kind of guard is okay. But what you notice was Gonzaga had full guard. Okay, fine. That's a good way to control someone, but not great and then was sort of content to maybe grab a wrist with an, with an overhook, of, uh, or a, you know, not an overhook exactly, but like a, flattening his own forearm to his own stomach to keep Mirko Krokop's wrist there. But that's not really the right way to do it, because Mirko's head is sort of like in the center of the belly of Gonzaga, which means he has all kinds of distancing to bomb on him from. And here's the difference. I would have liked to have seen Gonzaga bring his own knees to his chest Because, look, realistically, you're not going to see a really quick, snappy arm bar from the guard from Gabriel Gonzaga. So what does he need to do? He needs to hold on to Krokop to not get bombed on, to not create distance, and to not allow a guy to, to do anything to him. So that means still keeping full guard, but getting underneath him a little bit. And to do that, he would have had to bring his knees to his chest and then really grab on top of the back of the neck, get a gable grip and hold him there so that there's really not much he can do. And from there, maybe he could have gotten a butterfly guard or whatever and then pushed him away. But he didn't. He just sort of had a loose guard where his knees were really far apart away from his face. Well, that was fine because there's really, for for Gonzaga's body type, that's not much of a submission threat. And 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 as such... There's also a lot of distance there. There's open space there. Again, open space is where bad things happen to somebody. And because of the way gravity works and because of the way the control worked, Mirko Krokop was able to land vicious elbows and punches. Finally, uh, the guard came loose because he was eating shot after shot. Krokop finished on him, and uh, and then uh, I think referee Leon Roberts stopped it from there. Great win by uh, uh, Krokop. Um, showcasing both guys' strengths, really, and both guys' weaknesses. Uh, I'm really not going to talk about the Jimmy Manuel versus Jan Blakowicz fight. It was... Absolutely terrible. Um, same with Sheldon Westcott and Pavel uh, I There's just nothing to say. I do want to focus in on Marina Moroz and Joanne Calderwood. Uh, so, big upset. Uh, Marina Moroz defeats Joanne Calderwood at uh, 130 of the very first round. That one really took me by surprise. I think it took a lot of people by surprise. Um, here's why. Moroz looked like she was a lot quicker and I don't know, did anyone sort of feel like Calderwood was sort of walking through a fog? I'm not saying that Moreau wouldn't beat her in a rematch at all. Not saying that, whatever. I'm just saying it was a weird performance from Calderwood, who's, who is, I wouldn't call aggro, forward pressure kind of fighter, but at least a little more proactive than this. Anyway, what you noticed was the, the right side of uh, Calderwood was continuously exposed. So the way the sequence worked was, uh, Moroz threw a series of punches, then a high kick, and then went back to that same side, and it kept landing on Calderwood, who sort of covered up and was backed into the cage. From there, in the clinch, what you see Moroz do is she locks up an arm, standing, and then a sort of a collar tie at the same time. Uses that to pull guard and wing for an arm bar. Now, she can't get the armbar immediately, so she slowly walks into it. And this was really weird. Because I've watched this fight maybe 40 times now because I'm, I'm trying to find the moment where things went wrong and the fight maybe from both people's perspectives. There's a clear and precise moment where, for example, Calderwood could have come up and brought up the knee and she didn't. The knee to stop uh, uh, Morose from pinching her knees together. Okay, but you didn't do that, fine. What's the most basic thing to do in an armbar? To get your elbow back. Once your elbow was sort of past their hip butt line, there's not a lot they can do. Okay, I mean they can try and crank on your forearm if they're Frank Meer and you're Tim Sylvia, but all things being equal, it's just not going to go too well for you. And you can see her draw her arm back and then just kind of stops. I don't even know how to explain it. Like you saw, you were doing the right thing and you just stopped. And then on top of that, what you see is Moreau's go back and watch how high her hips were in the air, right? Which was smart because it allowed her to pull in um Calderwood's arm a little more tightly when she wrapped her left leg around the back of Calderwood's neck let me explain something to you when you have an arm bar there's a lot of moving parts it's not just control of the arm being deep enough and you raising your hips one of your legs the outside leg you need to clamp down on it on the back of their neck and it may not look like much from the outside but when you get someone really good at it and I'm literally like twice the size of Ryan Hall but he's shown me his arm bars before um it it, it, it it can almost hurt it's so it's so strong on the back of your neck. Um, it's really good at controlling your posture and keeping everything tight. That's one of those arm bars where you do want everything crunched together, even if you're the guy executing it. You only want to open up once you're ready to, once everything is locked into place. So she crunches back on the back of the neck and then this was the other weird part. Calderwood before she gets her arm out, just stands. I don't even understand what she was thinking. Was she going to shake her off? I, I don't get it. It was the weirdest submission defense ever because, look, even if you get your arm locked fully and they haven't, and you still got them stacked down, if you can keep them stacked for a little while, you're okay. Right? You're not, you're not doing too badly. And what you saw Calder would do was raise one foot. I thought, okay, she's going to raise a foot so then she can drive the arm that is trapped actually even further down. Right doing what we call getting the other person to smell their knee, getting stacking the person trying to armbar so far that their knee is actually on their nose or by their ear, you know really stacking it because then they can't quite get the crunch. The crunch is very tight and compacted, but it it's you know you't can go you can't it's like you have to find the sweet spot if you're too loose, there's no crunch, and if you're too tight there's no crunch. The crunch is still tight, but it's kind of in that sweet spot and so if you can really break someone, then the arm can come out then the arm can come out. And she didn't do that. She just stood up. I don't know what she was thinking. I don't know if she was hurt and not thinking clearly or or bad weight cut or what, man. But that was an uncharacteristically bad performance. But I think what we can at least at a minimum amount of time say, um, you know, proactive offense and MMA wins, man. And Moreau's, we knew from her, res- her resume, had a good arm bar. But, you know, she didn't even do the Salo Hibero bit uh, where... If you get your arm stacked, you don't even have to stack them necessarily. If you get your arm caught, you can come down, have them, you know, because look at Marosa's hips, they're up in the air. She's on her shoulders. Bring her hips down. Bring her hips down, put your weight on top of her, then they can't quite extend. And then you can slowly wiggle your arm free. Um, I've had, you know, varying degrees of success with that. Um, Not a lot to say about the uh, prelim card. Uh, Leon Edwards had a great, quick knockout over Seth Buzinski. In the end, I'm not sure exactly what it means. Uh, terrible fight between Fabinski uh, and McClellan. Uh, Sergio Moraes looked okay, uh, tried to strike. Um, Yatsin Meza looked okay. Uh, Anthony Hamilton versus Daniel malenchuk was uh, terrible. Uh, Alexandra Albu, she had, looked like she had some good hands, but not much else. Uh, but that was enough in this particular case. I mean, I, know, I realize she won by guillotine choke, but... Um, If the only portions of her offense that really caught my attention was the speed and power and precision of her punches. Um, Stevie Ray looked pretty good against Martine Bandel. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing more from Stevie Ray. And then, uh, Taylor Lapalus had really nice striking on the outside. Good movement, athletic kid. We'll see more from him. But, you know, the point about these other guys is I know some of them are UFC vets and some are not. Guys like, or, uh, you know, guys like Taylor Lapalus is his UFC debut, um, you know, they're not bad fighters, but they're developmental fighters. So there's a lot to work on before I think they should be showcased at this level. But again, no one really cares. All right, so then we move on to the other card that I thought had some decent fights on it. This being Bellator. One, oh, by the way, fighter of the card on uh, UFC 964, I'm going to give to uh, Marina Moroz. And uh, yeah, there we go. Um, okay, Bellator 136. So this took place at the Brent Event Center in Irvine, California. Your main event, Will Brooks taking on Dave Jansen. Will Brooks wins across the board, 49-46, 49-46, and then 49-46. He retains his Bellator lightweight title. Uh, great performance by him. Um, one thing to sort of note was was I feel like Will Brooks is getting the kinds of Fights in the cage that are only good for his development. In other words, he got five rounds of cage time and no, he didn't finish. And that's these things we need to monitor about, you know, his ongoing strengths and weaknesses. But he didn't take a lot of damage either. You know, yes, he you know took some shots here and there, of course. But what I mean to say is against a credentialed opponent who has offense everywhere, maybe not the best offense everywhere, but he's got, you know, answers for, for each scenario in MMA... This was a great experience for Will Brooks, and I just feel like this is going to be so helpful for him down the line. To get that amount of time with, you know, a sturdy challenge, which is what, I mean, the scores may not reflect it, but Dave Jansen is a, is a credentialed fighter, and to not take too much damage, really important to note that as we move forward. Um, Brooks didn't look that great early, it was a little more parity, but even the first one was pretty close, but then he took over from there, you know, how did Brooks do it? I thought on the outside, moving forward with his striking, he looked great. He would throw double jabs and then a cross and then duck. He would throw a jab cross and then a high kick, and these would land routinely. Um, He would throw a right cross and then a left knee to the body. You saw uh, commentator Jimmy Smith note how he was going side to side in different sort of levels. Lots of body work along the fence between both guys, but as as time wore on, much more from Brooks. Brooks, much more the physical athlete of the two. You know, obviously sensational takedown defense. Um, One thing that was kind of interesting, again, was in the clinch, uh, uh, similar to what you saw Justin Gaethje do to Luis Palomino, Kicking out um, the legs from the clinch of his opposition, did Dave, Dave Jansen, I believe, in the first round. That was an interesting thing to note. So I think you might see some more guys doing that because you can just pull a guy and force them to plant on a leg. You know, there's a lot you can do with that. In the end, though, um, this fight kind of stalled out towards the end. It was not the most scintillating bout, uh, but Dave Jansen sort of tired. I think the investment from the body punching and the, and actually just the body work generally from Will Brooks was just too much for Dave Jansen to handle. In fact, there was a point there where Dave Jansen was going for desperation strikes. Excuse me, excuse me, desperation takedowns. Uh, Those are never good. Um, Yeah, there's just not a lot to Dave's performance outside of that first round. You know, he was throwing a lot of like, you know, jab cross, uh, high kick, and then turning and spinning heel kick and trying to put everything together a la Nate Marquardt, Wilson Govea type business, but um, it just didn't work for him this particular time. You know he's thirty-five years old too, I suppose. So, um, so what I saw from Will Brooks was I liked I liked the, the 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 cleanliness of the striking. I liked the precision of it. Not particularly lethal, but certainly accurate and problematic. Uh, just needs to take another step before he allows guys to clinch with him. I think a lot of these guys who are who have a you know a ground base and they slowly through their athleticism and their own hard work they build a striking defense. They sometimes have a willingness to, like, oh, I don't mind if, you know, he, this, You know, I, if I punch and then punch my way into the clinch. I would like to see him be, like, really resistant to the clinch. Like, like allergic to it. Because his striking on the outside, at his range, which, by the way, his his spatial awareness in this fight was amazing in terms of his striking. But I just felt like he was a little too complacent with either him going to the clinch or letting Jansen find it. I would have liked to see him be allergic to it, get back on the outside, and... and You know, let's see you turn the corner with that striking. Um, Rafael Carvalho defeated Joe Schilling. Split decision, 29-28, 28-29, and then 30-27. Joe Schilling, this was the big thing that I noticed from Joe Schilling. I mean, obviously, look, he's a kickboxer, right? That's who he is, and he's working on his ground. He hit a hip bump sweep, which I thought was kind of awesome. Uh, But... um, You know, as you saw at the commentator, he went for an ankle lock that wasn't there. Those Achilles locks, man, they're just pain locks, and they hurt under the right person. But a lot of people do them wrong. They just kind of lean back um, in the wrong way without having the... You you, you have to have the right kind of bite on your wrist. Your wrist has to be in a certain position, uh, which can be hard, I think, to get with those gloves, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, so it's a hard one to get, even if you got it right and the leg position's all correct. So there was that, uh, what I would like to see from, from Schilling is without getting too critical about things, obviously on the outside, he's just going to wreck you. Um, it was on the inside that I thought he could have done a little more work. He seemed really reluctant to pummel for inside control. So he was pretty good about like hanging his hips out and, and, and trying to get bicep control or, you know, cross face with his elbow, Carvalho to keep him away. But he wasn't really good at establishing inside control, but because, and that's why, and you need that because a you can use that for your own offense, or b inside control you can get inside and then you can clinch break, right? Um, and that just wasn't available to him. And on the ground, you know, he would go to his back. I would like to see him. Like there were times where Carvalho was really loose with his own positioning. I would have liked to have seen Schilling posted an elbow, post a handout, and then do what's called a technical stand up and back away. Like These were options that were available to him, just not going flat on his back. And there were times where he was trying, I could see, to not be flat on his back, to be on his side. Um, so he's learning, you know. And look, the groundwork is hard, man. It takes a long time to learn that. Um, I just don't think folks have a realistic expectation sometimes about how difficult it is. You see a certain standard of excellence in MMA, and you think that's just what everyone knows. No, man. It's hard to learn this stuff. So in the end, he lost there. Um, Held did what Marcin Held always does against Tiger Sarnowsky, winning by a Scream. <laughs> second, like, Bellator event where people are losing via Scream at 111 of the third round. This was kind of interesting to note. Um, um, there's not much to this. Held looked pretty good with his takedowns. Was even able to cut Sarnofsky with, a, I think, uh, an elbow from either half guard or mount in the second round. But it was the third round Pretty standard common clinch position, right? Um, and what Held did was you want Held, like, face-to-face with you. You don't want him to create any angle. Because once he creates an angle on you, well, that's when you got problematic. So what did he do? You see him circle his leg to the inside, right? So so uh, Sarnofsky is, like, behind him but almost perpendicular to him. So I think, like, the left shoulder, roughly, of Sarnofsky is in the center of the chest, uh, excuse me. The left shoulder of Held is in the center of the chest of Sarnavsky, and what happened there is, um, you just see, uh, you just see. Uh, pardon me. I'm trying to click my thoughts here. You just see um, Held circle hit the inside of his leg back, right, and he and he uses that as a placeholder. So he, he circles his, the top of his foot on the back of the calf on the right leg, the back of the calf of Sarnovsky. He is only using that to hold that leg into place so Sarnovsky can't yank it out. He then rolls underneath like he always does, grabs a hold of the leg. You see Sarnovsky briefly try to like push his hands off and get his leg out, but once uh, Sarnovsky, excuse me, once Held goes belly down, it's a show. But it was a pretty simple finish, really. Oh, there you are. You're up behind me, but you're going to be perpendicular. You're going to let me create an angle? Great. After the angle, I'm just going to circle my leg to the inside. And uh, I'm going to use it as a placeholder. Then I'm going to go, and once I put my hands on it, then I can let go with my own leg, and I can wrap the rest of your leg, and then I'm just going to squeeze my body straight, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, you know, make you scream. And that's exactly right. what happened. Uh, and then Tony Johnson via split decision defeats uh, former champion, I believe. I, I can't remember anymore. Alexander Volkov uh, at twenty nine twenty eight, twenty nine twenty eight, and then twenty eight twenty nine. Not much to write home about there. Real quickly, uh, Clever Luciano, who is like a famous jiu-jitsu practitioner, he was on the uh, prelim card. He won. Uh, Let's see uh, uh, Fabricio Guerrero lost Which is kind of surprising Sayada Sayada Wad won And then Joey Beltran Defeated Brian Rogers In what was a Fairly significant slugfest Uh, Real quickly Let's just go over the results Of World Series of Fighting 20 Main event falls through At the very last minute Of course Because what else would happen At World Series of Fighting 20 This took place at the Foxwoods Resort and Casino In Ledyard, Connecticut Uh, David Branch defeated Jesse McGillaght How do you say this guy's name? McEllaght Via Von Fluchoke, let me just say, you know, look, I know the guy filled in a last-minute notice. You know, you can't be too rough on people. But if you lose at a nationally televised MMA organization by Von Fluchoke, with very little exception, that should be grounds for dismissal. That, Like, I've never seen someone get put out with a Von Fluchoke in the gym. Never. Never seen it happen. Uh, obviously, fights are different, but I've seen just about everything else, and I've never seen that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Nick Newell defeated Joe Condon via unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-28, 29-28. Uh, Nick won the first two rounds, probably lost a third. His gas tank was really bad uh, in that third round, uh, but essentially won it with what I would say was the backward movement of Condon plus some, some decent ground, uh, decent wrestling from Newell. Uh, Emmanuel Wallow defeated Phoenix Jones, uh, unanimous decision, 29-28, across the board. Phoenix Jones, a.k.a. Ben Fodor, you know, he has, he looks like the athlete. He's got great movement on the outside. Good jab. Terrible, uh, for this level anyway, wrestling defense. Um, let's guys get in on his hips. Now, Wallow's a bit underrated because he has a really athletic penetration step. You know, the step you do where you change levels into a guy. But Wallow had no guard passing. None. Hardly any. So he would just get the takedown and could just kind of ride out half guard. And a previous opponent of Jones had done that to him, and Jones had won. But uh, it didn't work this time for him. Um, so Emmanuel Walla was like, I don't know why they matched up Jones with a guy who had like the only strength that Jones doesn't, but there you go. That happened. Uh, a weird fight for Phoenix Jones. And by the way, the, the broadcast crashed. Oh, real quickly. Sorry, the Bellator fighter of the card uh, definitely goes to Will Brooks. All right, and then uh, let's see. World Series of Fighting. We have no attendance or gate figure on that. Um, Steve Mako, the former Olympian, uh, defeated uh, Giuliano Coutinho. Uh, This fight was like whatever until Mako hit a single leg, run in the pipe, center of the cage, more or less, and then just vicious ground and pound from there. Coutinho actually has some pretty good jujitsu for a big guy, but it just wasn't really relevant in this particular case. Uh, And then the rest of the main card was just Ozzy Dugulubgov defeating Lucas Montoya, essentially by an arm break, either from a kick, a blocked kick, or an elbow that came over the top after a takedown, but Montoya filling in on late notice. Real quickly, there was a guy to note, Islam Mamadov defeated Leon Davis. Uh, Islam Mamadov trains out with uh, Habib Nurmagomedov, so if you can find that fight, take a look at it, really good event. Uh, So this weekend, UFC on Fox 15, obviously the Romero versus uh, Jacare fight is now Dunsky, but There's a lot of other great fights on the card, especially that main card, so uh, be on the lookout for that. I'm not sure what's going to be on Access TV this coming week, Um, and of course Glory doesn't come back until May, but but yeah, so we at least have UFC on Fox 15 to look forward to. So, on the post on MMA Fighting, I'll get all these results up, I'll post some of the fights, because Spike.com posts all the fights now, so I'll post some of those. I will also post some stuff over the weekend from grappling matches if you want to see those. And of course, the Lamont Peterson, Danny Garcia coverage as well. You can follow me on Facebook at, uh, let's see, Facebook.com slash Luke T Sports at SBN Luke Thomas. And of course, um, you can email me at Thomas at SBNation.com. Guys, I apologize for the lack of video. It's coming, I promise. I'm appreciative of everyone who supports this podcast. Um, Hopefully we'll have that up and running by next week. No guarantees, but I think that's the timeline. Anyway, until next time, enjoy the fights.